please. Dave, why do you have to be so dark and depressing? My God. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be. Yeah. I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So this week, the big new release will be Detroit. So we are taking a look at one of director Catherine Bigelow's earlier films, Near Dark. So we're looking at Near Dark and Familial Bonds. And to do that, I have a very special guest. It feels like I'm I got in a time machine and I'm going back in time to like it's been a long time, Mike, since you've been on an episode. Do you remember what the last one was? It was April, I think. I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was for. It was a long time ago. It was months and months. We, I finally was it got... like the Huntsman 5 or some <laughs> bullshit like that? Some nonsense, yes. Uh, so I'm sure, as I'm sure most of you know, that voice you hear is Mike from War Machine versus Warhorse and Original Remake and you know whatever else, whatever other podcast he's doing now. So thanks for being here, Mike. I really like the introduction of whatever other shit he's doing now. I'm not paying I, I can't keep it, track. But... <laughs> I'm not doing anything important. That's all you need to know, dear listener. And neither are you listening to this. <laughs> so since uh, War Machine vs. Warhorse has like such a uh, specific schedule that it that it keeps to lately. What is this? What is, oh, what yeah. is... <laughs> Don Rickles here, hosting Pop Culture Case Study. That's right. So what is coming up next? Or what may be coming up next ah. for listeners? <laughs> Jeez. Uh, yeah, I only have like 15 episodes on my hard drive, so I guess I'll just pick what I yeah, want. Yeah, pick one at random. You know. What was I watching back in May? Uh, yeah, I I don't know. Um, I've seen some good stuff, some bad stuff. Uh, I'm going to do one with Shane. I'm going to record one with Shane this week on Valerian, which uh, will nice. probably be out of theaters by that point. <laughs> uh, but he's a big fan of Starship Troopers, so he's sort of harassing me to like finally nice. cover that one, which I think will be fun to talk yeah. about. Uh, which was also a failure of its time in sci-fi. Yeah. So we're going to look at Cloud Atlas, another, sort of very another failure. Failure, yeah. <laughs> so I don't think, you know, I think actually it's very topical because I'll put that one out right after we've established the end run for Valerian and it will be officially a failure. So it's a oh, yeah. creepy failure. I think you can call that now. <laughs> I think at this point you can call that. Well, you know, hopefully it'll have a second life like uh, Starship Troopers. Yeah. Not quite happened yet for Cloud Atlas, but we'll yeah, see. Not quite. Like, you know, when, when the emoji movie is out uh, out earning you, you know, it's not going Please. well for Please. Valerian. You have to be so dark and depressing. My God. Uh, Valerian was fun, people. That's a spoiler for my review. Yeah. It was fun. I agree. All right. Um, so before we jump into the psychology stuff, or I jump into the psychology stuff, why don't you give us a couple movie recommendations connected to Near Dark? Well, as we were kind of talking, uh, I guess off mic, unless you you use that shit and all my horrible things that I say when I don't think anyone. You mean listening. like you do to me <laughs> every time on well, your show? Well, it's the best. It's the best material. Always if I'm being honest. So, That's true. Um, you know, I, I compared this to because uh, you you were talking about if you had not used addiction already, that would have been a layup for this particular film and. Uh, watching it, uh, which it had been since like the video store days for me, I had not gone back to, to see this one. And this is like a perfect uh, near doc like VHS experience. This like fits that sort of mold. Um, I went back to Train Spotting, 
which is very much about addiction. And you get some similarities with these uh, vampires, even though they're not named as vampires in this film, as being kind of fuck-ups, goofballs, uh, thrill-seekers. They take on a lot of unnecessary risks for vampires for that like high that they're chasing. So if you've not seen Near Dark, but you've probably seen Train Spotting, I would say that's a good uh, recommend. And the one that I told you I was going to be negative and not recommend, which is actually not a film that I've ever, ever particularly hated, uh, but it gets a lot of hate, is uh, Interview with the Vampire, hmm. which I've watched multiple times and never, you know, it's never been one of my favorites, but uh, I always liked the, the look of it. You know, I like that sort of feel. Um, but man, it is it is probably the counterpoint to this film as far as the vampires are not fun. They no. mope. They bemoan their existence, and there is no Bill Paxton in sight. Uh, so that's true. But that there is, is there is Antonio Banderas. So that's not bad. I thought a lot about him because I, I I always think about. I think that's the biggest sin of the movie for me. And don't get me wrong, I know we're getting into interview with the vampire. I understand Brad Pitt's decision there, but still, I'd be like, okay, you know, we all make mistakes in the pursuit of love <laughs> antonio banderas killed a small child but is she really a small child yeah it's fine She's like 100 years old come on she had her time it's fine Kristen Dunst's old hat at that point <laughs> time to get with banderas desperado nice. el mariachi <laughs> could not agree more all right well, we this, is, this is like off the rails about? already like <laughs> haven't even gotten to the movie so that's what uh, you get when you get hey mike take the microphone and talk now all right it's true it's the fucking worst <laughs> all right so um given that we are going to take a small break and i will talk about familial bonds and then we'll bring uh mike who cannot be corralled back to talk about near dark hello my name is andrew i'm the host of the last new wave the podcast that looks at the wide and varied nature of Australian cinema. If you've ever seen an Australian film and thought, man, I wish more people could see that, then this show aims to do just that. By bringing you reviews of the latest Australian films, as well as retrospective looks at notable and forgotten films from Australia's history, The Last New Wave aims to help further the audience of Australian cinema. We also aim to deliver looks behind the scenes with interviews with directors, producers, and actors of Australian films, such as the director of The Man from Hong Kong, Brian Trenchard-Smith, and the director of All This Mayhem, Eddie Martin. So, make sure to check out The Last New Wave by heading over to AB filmreview.com for episodes or following on twitter or facebook at the last new wave all right so for the psychology section today we're talking about familial bonds so if you look up human bonding uh basically just it's the process of how we develop close interpersonal relationships and it usually happens between family members and close friends but it can also happen among groups like sports teams and really any group of people that spend a lot of time together Now, this is something that, of course, is more intense than just liking somebody. It typically refers to this process of what we call attachment. We've we've talked about attachment a lot on this show. And it can develop between romantic or platonic partners, close friends, or parents and children. It's usually characterized by specific emotions like trust and some real affection. Any two people who spend a lot of time together can form a bond, but it is much more common to happen within families. So if you look at parental bonding, of course, again, we're going to talk about attachment. So in the late 1950s, uh, British psychologist John Bowlby published a paper called The Nature of the Child's Tie to His Mother. So this is where attachment theory really began. So it talked about a concept called the affectional bond or the emotional bond, depending on where you read it. 
And it's this universal tendency for we as humans to attach or seek closeness to other people. And we feel secure when that attachment figure is around. Now, a lot of attachment theory, uh, it comes from observation of animals, but it's also based on observing children who had missed the experiences we see as typical from parental figures. So a lot of the early research done by Bowlby and Associates, um, it proposed that children have this need from birth to make emotional attachments. This is not something that is learned. This is something that we come out of the womb with. So we know that the baby needs it. What about the parents? So in terms of maternal bonding, from all research out there, among human bonds, the maternal bond is one of the strongest. It, it begins to, to develop actually before the child is born, during pregnancy. And following pregnancy, uh, there's something produced called oxytocin during lactation, which, which ends up reducing anxiety and fostering bonding because the mother is feeling anxiety. And if that will, if that will produce that, that bond will produce that, they're going to feel less anxious and feel more connected to this child. Okay, the other side of it is paternal bonding. So in contrast to maternal bonds, which are relatively universal, paternal bonds tend to vary over the span of a child's development in terms of both its strength and stability. Fathers don't have that advantage of the oxytocin running through their system, you know, building that bond up right away. In fact, there are many children who have grown up in fatherless households and don't experience that paternal bond at all. Generally speaking, paternal bonding is more dominant later in a child's life after language develops. So the more interaction you have, the more the more strength, the, the stronger that bond is going to be. So dads tend to be more influential in play interactions as opposed to interactions of nurturance. Father-child bonds also tend to develop with respect to topics such as money or political views, whereas mother-child bonds developed in relation to topics like religious views or general outlooks on life, according to some research. Now, in terms of kind of what goes on in the body, uh, in 2003, there was a researcher at Northwestern University, and they found that progesterone, which is a hormone uh, usually associated with pregnancy and maternal bonding, may actually control the way men react towards their own children. Specifically, if there is a lack of progesterone, um, there would be less aggressive behavior in men and would stimulate them to act in a fatherly way towards their offspring. And this is all done in experiments with, with mice in particular. Okay, so the first article we're going to look at is about supportive family environments and whether they can influence the outcome of these interventions we have for the prevention of depression, especially in kids. So most of these interventions uh, that were designed to prevent depression in young people really focus on the development of what we call resiliency. Um, but reviews of the research typically conclude that the effects are pretty weak, and when they're significant, they're not generally maintained over time. So in looking at this research, these researchers thought that they proposed that the level of family relationship support will have an effect on the impact of a school-based preventative intervention on depression, anxiety, and emotional well-being. So this is a huge study. Um, they, they started out with over 5,600 adolescents who were enrolled in eighth grade. And they gave these students a bunch of measures. Um, the first one is called the CESD, um, which is the Center for Epidemiological Studies Depression Scale. Uh, and it's basically just 20 questions um, that asks about the frequency of depressive symptoms over the past week. And then they gave them an anxiety symptoms from the Spence Children's Anxiety Scale. Um, and they just, it basically goes through the symptoms of anxiety and asks, like, 
How often do you feel this? Never, sometimes, often, or always. And then they gave them an emotional well-being scale and a scale that measured their family relationships, which is called the multidimensional scale of perceived social support. So after this, they gave them their depression intervention. And what that intervention was aiming to do is strengthen um, kind of the cognitive and behavioral competencies of the individual, uh, taking a look at those qualities and skills and enhance the supporting factors from the school environment. So they did this over three years, and then they, you know, and then they gave them the same, uh, the same measures as they gave them in the beginning. So what they found was small but significantly, significantly greater reductions than in other studies in depressive and anxiety symptoms and improvement in well-being were found over time for this intervention group compared to the control group they had. But for those who didn't experience kind of low family relationship support. No significant effects of the intervention were found over the control condition. So basically, the big difference here is the family support, the familial bond, as we've been talking about. So if there if there is a strong familial bond, then these interventions can work a lot better. But if there's not, it's not really going to help. So you have to kind of attack the problem where it starts. And a lot of times, kids with depression and anxiety, it's due to that attachment that we keep talking about. If they have low attachment or insecure attachment, it's usually what we call it, then they're going to be more likely not only to suffer from depression and anxiety, but these, these usual kind of quote-unquote universal preventative methods and therapies are not necessarily going to work for them. All right, so this next article, this last article we're going to cover, um, is about a larger topic. It's about postpartum depression. Um, but since we talked about how uh, the familial bonds happen, uh, I thought this would be a good article to talk about because it's talking about how postpartum depression, depression just after the birth of the child, uh, is a quote-unquote family affair. And it was looking at the impact on mothers, fathers, and children, how it affects them in different ways. And this is from Letourneau and many other uh, authors in 2012. So, of course, postpartum depression negatively affects, especially women's functioning, the marital relationship, the interaction quality between the mother and the infant, and the child's social and cognitive developmental, developmental outcomes. So it affects a lot of things. But fathers are also affected by what we'll now refer to as PPD. Uh, either directly by experiencing depression themselves during this period, or indirectly by supporting and coping with their partner's symptoms of PPD. So there's a huge body of literature that it has tried to explain has tried to explain maternal PPD. Things like fluctuating levels of hormones and uh, especially estrogen and thyroid hormones, but the results uh, don't really necessarily bear that out quite yet. Recent research suggests that the neuroendocrine and inflammatory processes were having a, a big effect here, but still, there's not enough research to really prove this. And there's very little research on biological predictors for paternal depression. That's something we really hadn't even thought of till recently. But the limited information we have suggests that low testosterone levels are linked to depression in men, and the testosterone levels typically decrease prior to and several months after the birth of their child. So what about the impact of postpartum depression on infants and children? I think it's pretty clear how it affects women, uh, kind of went over all those symptoms at the very beginning, and men uh, can also have a form of postpartum depression. It's not as, maybe it's biologically based because they're not, the, they're not the ones having the child, but they will sometimes get depressed just before or just after the pregnancy. Or they could just be dealing with their, their partner's postpartum depression and then they get this, their, there's this kind of sympathy reaction after, after the birth of the child. But what about the effect on infants and children? So 
Disturbances in mother-child interactions have been observed at one year postpartum, even when mother's symptoms of depression have gone away. So it still has an effect. It results in things like difficult child temperament, poor health, decreased intellectual and motor development, less secure attachment, no big surprise there, and lower levels of self-esteem, self-esteem, as well as long-term behavioral problems. So it's not just like once the postpartum depression goes away, everything goes back to normal. It does have an effect moving forward. And evidence does suggest that mother-child interactions have more impact on the child's self-esteem and emotional well-being, while the father-child interactions have impact on the child's social competency. Research also suggests that Infants of mothers with PPD are more likely than those than, than other children to be abused or neglected, hospitalized with health issues like asthma, and to have sleep-related problems. It also negatively affects infant performance on measures of cognitive development, things like learning tasks and object permanence. And there's really clear evidence that PPD negatively influences a child's social-emotional development. And of course, this makes sense. This, this emotional connection, this bond is not what it is, quote unquote, supposed to be at that period of time. And that is a really important time for that child to, to connect. And we talked about in an earlier article how uh, children are born with this need to connect to a parental figure. Uh, rates of psychiatric disorders among children of depressed parents are two to five times above normal, and the risk associated with maternal depressive symptoms is comparable to that of paternal depressive symptoms. So it doesn't really make a difference there. And it also has a notable impact on a kid's behavioral development. So four to six-year-old children, when they're exposed to maternal depression at the age of 18 months old, will exhibit many more negative expressions, protests, and disruptive behaviors during play interactions with their mothers compared to kids of non-depressed moms. Preschool and kindergarten-age children exposed to postpartum depression during infancy, especially boys, are prone to be more antisocial, aggressive, hyperactive, and distractible. So it actually becomes really important to actually screen mothers and fathers for PPD. There's actually something called the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale, the, the EPDS, and it's really short. It's 10 questions, self-report that reflects mood over the last seven days, and really is the only screening tool that has been used that has been what we call normed for the identification of PPD in both mothers and fathers. So then if we catch them, we can do PPD interventions for these mothers and fathers. So there's a big, a big body of literature focused on the treatments of maternal symptoms of PPD. Uh, known effective treatments include psychotherapeutic or psychological support for mothers provided by professionals like uh, psychiatric mental health nurses, physicians, or peer professional support systems. And to some degree, some medications, uh, SSRIs. And those are the most common uh, form of antidepressants. Unfortunately, there has been little to no intervention research targeting male partners of mother, mothers with PPD. In one small study, Australian fathers who participated in a six-week group treatment program specifically designed for male partners actually ended up reporting lowered levels of depression and stress and higher levels of social support. Another way to attack this is to have relationship counseling for both of the people involved, because even if the father isn't depressed and the mother is, we mentioned earlier, the father will have to cope with their partner who is having difficulties. So coming together and discussing this with a professional has been really, really helpful. And really what we're finding is this, this familial bond is really, really important, not just for the mother, not just for the father, not just for the child, but for all of them. All of them are connected you know, by uh, connected by blood. So they need to have this bond to really thrive as best they can. So it's important 
not only to realize that PPD exists and to not and to not put out negative messages about that, like these people are bad people. They're not. They're normal people who are going through something really rough at a really difficult time. So it's really important for my profession to screen for this uh, and also doctors as well, not just my profession, but to screen for this and to find the people who are having difficulty and actually take care of this as soon as possible so they can get back to creating that bond. Uh, and I think we see that familial bond in Near Dark in two different families, and we'll see them in very different ways. Uh, and we'll talk more about that uh, when we take a break, and then we'll bring Mike back to talk about the rest of Near Dark. This is Chris Maynard. I'm host of the following films podcast. Every week I discuss a current release with one of the creative forces behind the film. Whether it's Giles Nutkins talking hell or high water, Leah Thompson discussing her work on Trouble with the Truth, or Jeremy Sandy chatting about his work on the Deepwater Horizon. You can find our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you find podcasts. Even better yet, you can go to followingfilms.com, check out our latest episode, get some film news, reviews, and all sorts of goodness. Uh, that was my son, Jacob. He says hello, and he really wants you to check out the show. All right, so we're back now. We're back to talk about the movie. We're back to talk about Near Dark. So before we kind of really jump into it, I wanted to talk about, of course, like our history with the movie, whatever that may be, and also kind of a little behind the scenes of how this happened. Because for the longest time, uh, I was planning to do Point Break uh, with you because I love Point Break and you love Point Break. But I think I just watched it relatively recently, like maybe three or four months ago. So I kind of wanted to watch something new. And also I was like, it's going to be the two of us going, you know, it's awesome. This. This is also awesome because Point Break you is fucking the great. Chris Farley show exactly. That's what it would have been. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know what yeah, else I is great? I didn't think that I had scene. a new take on Point Break uh, at all. So I, I would have enjoyed, you know, not even yeah. double dipping. I don't know what it would have been at this point, but yeah, I think we we both came to the same conclusion. It's like, huh? I don't know how I'm going to fill the space with right. that one. It's great. I don't know what else. <laughs> yeah. To say about anyway, it. see you next week. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of you know texted you and you know we wanted to do a Catherine Bigelow movie and you brought up Near Dark, which I had kind of heard about relatively recently like i heard people talking about it like oh this is you know one of Catherine bigelow's older movies something really worth watching so i was like great and it's a vampire movie that that sounds right up my alley let's let's do it so uh what is your history with near dark because mine is nothing this is i think i hadn't i hadn't actually heard of this movie until a couple months ago like i didn't know it existed so i have no connection to it so what about you I watched it when I was a teenager. Uh, I referenced the VHS days. I worked at a video store and got to watch a lot of movies. And, uh, you know, that, I mean, that ages me, uh, obviously working in a video store. But uh, this is also before really any sort of like online communities uh, that we know of now. So a lot of it was just blind watches. And since mm -hmm. I had free access to movies, um, I would watch something like, hey, I liked Point Break. Who directed that? Okay, Catherine Bigelow, right. who's that? And just go through and find other stuff and <clears throat> look at the box art and see uh, bullet-ridden Bill Paxton that's like charred and burnt to a crisp. Like just interesting, you know, artwork on there. And I'm like, yeah. okay, I'm gonna watch this. Um, that's about all I knew. I mean, I knew there was some sort of supernatural element to it just because of the cover art. Mm -hmm. But um, that was it. It was just sort of a uh, a blind watch, which are some of the best ones. There's a Nicolas Cage movie that I had a similar experience with. I think it's called Red Rock West. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's like this uh, noir film. I didn't know. I just knew he was, you know, he had really hideous denim on the cover. <laughs> and, and I was like, okay, I'm going to see this. And it's just him walking into a small town and, uh, yeah, this is like a vampire movie for, and don't get me wrong, it's an action movie. You know, Bigelow does action uh, extremely well. 
This might be but like her like... least action pack, though. Like, or one of them. There's like a well, couple yeah, read... segments that are really high intensity, but a lot of it is kind of like a weird road movie. Yeah, like I, I read a bit of trivia there on IMDb that was like the producer said, uh, if you don't know how to direct this movie after five days, then you're not going to be directing this movie. And <laughs> I guess she passed the first okay, five days. Okay, <laughs> uh, A little bit of pressure there. I, I wonder what she's doing. This is her second movie, too. Like, this is. Not exactly like someone who's like, well, I got this down. I know what I'm doing necessarily, but apparently she did. Yeah, I mean, she's always been, um, you know, her, her craft. She's it's very well done. Like, I, I, I don't yeah. think anyone's ever, ever going to accuse her of being like an experimental filmmaker. <laughs> it's just it's really sort of blue collar, almost nuts and bolts filmmaking, yeah. which I really I really appreciate. Um, but it's like if kind of Richard Linklater had maybe the technical prowess mm. to do this type of story because mm. there's an uh, an aimlessness as you said it's a road movie which yeah. I really like and it's a lot of just like hanging out and the biggest thing when I, I I guess insulted interview with vampire which I don't have much against I own the movie and whatever um is that there's not a lot of grieving over the previous life that I really like from the main character here. Like uh, initially, I guess it's shock as far as what the hell's wrong with me. Why am I smoking? Like when I'm right. hugging the sun, but what's he like hangs out with him and I guess gets over the fact that they do have to murder people. He doesn't necessarily seem to like hate their existence. He doesn't seem to blame them for this possibility of this new life because he's an aimless character. I mean, look how he's that opening sequence, how he's spending his mm. Saturday night. It's like in the desert with his boots up, just like yep. waiting for something to happen. <laughs> and I like Please. that. I, I like that. It's not, you know, it's, it's not the, uh, this is predates, I guess the grunge era. This is, <laughs> this is hair metal. <laughs> and right. they, uh, yeah, they're they're just not depressed about their, their existence. And, um, yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, and to combine that with that aimless nature, it's just like a weird little movie. But that being said, I had not watched it since I was a teenager. So I kind of want, and I was a little bit afraid cause I was like, Oh great. I've recommend this. What if it's a piece of shit? And I was just an idiot as a teenager. As um, we all yeah, were. I, I mean, that's, that's a yep. genuine worry. Whenever, whenever right. I haven't seen a movie since I was like less than like maybe 25, I'm like, well, it might be good. Let's, let's not, <laughs> I'm not going to bat for this until I rewatch it. So yeah, I actually actually really enjoyed the experience of watching this. Like I it it was definitely not what I expected at all. Like when you hear, oh, it's a Catherine Bigelow movie and it's a vampire movie, I actually expected to, this to be a lot less subtle than it was, a lot more over the top. Um I think you can tell that she's a new director, but a new director with with some serious talent working behind the camera. But it is it's very raw. It's much more raw than than most of the other films. Um, that I've seen from her. Uh, but there's a lot of things I like. She, she, um, she uses light in really interesting ways in this movie, which you kind of have to do in a vampire movie. It especially in the shootout, uh, which feels like the end of a lesser movie. Like it, I, I felt like, oh, this is the climax. We're done now. Right. And it's only like 50 minutes into a 90 minute movie. I'm like, oh, hmm, I guess not. I guess it's not what you're expecting. But it actually reminded me a lot of um, L.A. Confidential. Um, this is where you kind of see the bullet holes going through and that's the only light coming in. I really like that. I also like the image of the, the kind of flaming, the flaming bar as they're, as they're leaving the scene of the crime. And there's just a lot of beautiful shots. She uses a lot of like dusk lighting during this, which again, in a vampire movie, you're going to need to use that. 
But the way it's done, it feels, and it should in a vampire movie, again, it feels like a romance. Like the way it's shot, especially the first 30 minutes of this movie, is very soft and very kind of lovely and and, and very different from, from what she would do later in her career. So I kind of really appreciated the craft that was going in here as a young director. Do you find that you, with certain directors, you miss that element when they get a little more slick, a little more professional? Like, can you think of one that was better off when they hmm. were a little bit more amateur hour? Oh, that's that's a really good question because I my immediate reaction is to say that I do miss that. I actually, you know, even someone like Tarantino, um, who has gotten really good technically, um, I kind of miss Reservoir Dogs, Quentin Tarantino. You know, where it felt like he was kind of just doing this kind of guerrilla filmmaking almost, and it almost it almost felt more stagey than it than it did like a film. And then you look at you look at something uh, like The Hateful Eight which is also stagey, but you can tell he has so much more experience that sometimes you get a little bit too much distance from it, and it doesn't feel as visceral as as some of his earlier work. So he's the first person that comes to mind, but I'm sure there's probably a lot of directors like that where I, like, I miss that kind of, that raw nature of, of kind of how they started. You know, sometimes you can, like, you can, like, feel that, that hunger behind the camera like I have it's just like you know we've talked about this before kind of the sophomore slump with bands where you like have all these ideas for your first movie or your first album and then it like it's a hit like oh that worked out really well and then you have to kind of really figure out who you are after you get rid of like 20 years of ideas now you have to come up with a really good one for the next one um so what about you is there anyone uh that you feel like that no, I don't have an answer to my own question. I was going to use your answer on future podcasts. Uh, that's what I was going to do. Copy off your exams. Uh, no, I'm, I might go the other way and think, um, I think I'll say Paul Thomas Anderson, who, hmm. uh, if you look at something like Boogie Nights, um, you know, that certainly could not be accused of being like a passive experience. It is, it is no. very showy from the opening sequence where he introduces all the characters and don't get me wrong, I don't think his films look like, you know, slacker or anything, but I do feel like he's less interested in pulling off a really cool shot or, or, or using the, the camera as like an extension of himself. I think it's more extension of the characters now. Like Inherent Vice could have been just as crazy as Boogie Nights, but if you watch the two back to back, while Inherent Vice from a plot standpoint is far crazier – uh, it doesn't. It does not have any of those those insane sort of. Uh, we're going to change the, uh, the the style of film. Really, we're going to go to this. We're going to switch gears here, and uh, I, I think that's interesting because it's you almost expect someone to, when he comes out guns blazing that when he gets even more success and more backing financially, yeah. that what he's going to go crazier. But he's got he's kind of settled down a little bit more into all like the guy who made Boogie Nights. I can't see. I don't see how that's the same filmmaker that made the master really. Right. They, they feel like two extremely different people, which is cool. Yeah. I, I think you actually Unlike Tarantino. <laughs> I was just listening to episodes of, of your show. Yeah. I think you mentioned something like this where, you know, young Paul Thomas Anderson, like finally got some money and he went like, I don't know if I'm ever going to get to do this again. So right. I'm going to throw everything and see what sticks. I'm going to make a four hour long movie about the porn industry. Cause I fucking can. Cause some mm-hmm. idiot was dumb enough to give me the money. So it's Final interesting. Cut, baby. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting that with him, it, it almost seems like it's in the opposite direction. Whereas most directors start out really small um, and then slowly kind of ramp things up. And, you know, but I think Bigelow's really interesting because she definitely has a style, but, you know, she makes very different kinds of movies, too, within that style. Like, if if you would have shown me this movie and Zero Dark Thirty, that's a big jump. 
That's a big jump in style. That's a big jump in, you know, in her technique, in quality of film, in quality of performances. Like, there's there's a lot going on in Zero Dark Thirty that I never would have pulled from the director who did Near Dark in 1987. Yeah, or, or Strange Days also sticks out, really, in her filmography, too. Um, One of my but, favorites. That's yeah, speaking and, my language now. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if she's got anything on her... her credit list that is like strange dates at all i mean you can certainly see with uh the the leap from the hurt locker to zero dark 30 and right. probably even zero dark 30 detroit you can see that sort of procedural nature sure. um but yeah this uh the strange days that was when i was scared of i'm like no let's do the vampire movie i was like <laughs> yeah, that was i'd not... like to point out that was my that was my <laughs> suggestion and mike's like let's do the 90 minute movie and not the yeah. 150 minute movie thanks <laughs> yeah yeah, Strange Days is fun. I'll listen to that podcast, but I just I just won't be on it. How about that? <laughs> All right, that that sounds fair. Um, yeah, there's also there's also a particular shot in this movie where there's a character on horseback and there's lightning in the background, and it struck me as like this such a romantic image that you usually don't get from her. Um, and it made me wonder if this is because it's a vampire movie that it's so romantic in its tone, or if this is because this was early in her career before she kind of figured out, you know, what she really wanted to do and what her skill set was. But there's so many shots like that. Like there's a, there's a shot early in the movie, right before the kind of first feeding sequence. And you just see, uh, the kind of main female characters, just her fingers lingering on our male protagonist's neck. Just for a second. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, vampires aren't mentioned, but you get that this is a vampire movie just from that one shot. And I, I'm always a fan of efficiency in filmmaking. Like we don't need a speech that tells, that tells everybody who these people are. All we see is, you know, dusk lighting and fingers on a neck and her kind of like drawing back and not wanting to do what you know she's going to do. And you get everything you need. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to be. Dense, uh, incredibly dense. Do not probably get the right. vampire angle. Like, wow, her, you know, preacher's father. Uh, it must be really <laughs> abusive because she is running like Forrest Gump to get home, racing the sun. <laughs> Which I, I do want to point out that the sun acts very much like those uh, Brendan Fraser mummy movies. I can't remember which one where it's like they're racing. Like he's actually racing like the sun. And uh, of course, Brendan Fraser wins, but he's Brendan Fraser here, always. Yeah, the, the sun, uh, pretty quick here. Pretty yeah. quick. Uh, it's like Truman Show. Like you know, they turn the lights on. Just it, it's up. Yeah, yeah. But it's it, fun. It's that's, fun. That's an interesting point, though. Like it does uh, on an, on numerous occasions because of the way the film is shot by her. The sun is is an enemy in this movie. Uh, in every single sequence it shows up and that's again that's like a key vampire element and again without saying it you could just have the sun come up and show people smoking and in pain or burning as it is later in the movie and that tells you everything you need to know and actually i wish more filmmakers would trust their audience a little more i think there are a lot of directors who if they made this movie they would want to put in some stupid speech about how they're creatures of the night or how they're vampires or how they suck blood like yeah we can just you know show not tell and she is really good at that, you know, and uh, I think it's it's pretty impressive, especially for a young filmmaker to have that kind of confidence in what she's putting on screen. Yeah, probably some of the uh, the bigger criticisms of something like Zero Dark Thirty were when they felt beholden to the events, uh, the, the true events. Like there's there's a sequence where uh, Kyle Chandler's character uh, is relieved of duty and there's there's protesting. And I felt like. 
you know, within the narrative of that film, would you have really cared if suddenly Kyle Chandler was no longer the boss walking around? Like you just felt like he's in his office somewhere. I don't know right. where he's. And that's one thing. Uh, here, I think, you know, the desert thing could be an issue for you, but I, I think it speaks to the, the characters, the, the vampires. As I said, how reckless they are. What the hell are they doing driving around the desert where I, their only cover is the truck they're in? The desert got, seems like a, like a bad spot. That's the, the sun I mean, comes up they, quick in the desert, man. That's they, they were not playing the the White Wolf uh, role playing game in the early nineties, where <laughs> it's like, dude, you go to the city, you go to the city, and you yeah. you're in coffee shops, and you like somewhere yeah, with shade. <laughs> yeah, somewhere where there is a a structure that you can get into quickly if need be, get off the streets, and um, I, I love that about the film because it's like she it's like she made a western like to her mm-hmm. version of vampires or cowboys basically it's like the you know the the lost west that I really yeah. like and it's I almost saw them even more like I mean I could definitely see the cowboy angle that's just definitely there but like I found it really interesting that we have these kind of like these hick vampires and vampires are always seen as like very cool and very suave and very above it all. And I love that they were like dirty and grungy and fuck ups. Like they weren't, they weren't, they haven't like, who knows how long they've been alive, but there are things they have not learned. Like they are still taking risks. They well, are still in the desert. You know, I, I like that. You never see that in a vampire movie. Well, I, I, it speaks to their, I guess their survival because, uh, they're incredibly stubborn characters, and I, I think the reasoning behind you know, vampires being suave or charming or uh, incredibly well-read or into the arts is you're guessing because they're alive for centuries. They, they got get the time bored. to read, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> all the time. I already ate today, so <laughs> yeah. But that these characters are just like, no, I'm going to stay who I was back in the civil war south and i'm not fucking changing i don't care if i'm a vampire now right. i'm who i am I'm and me. it's like yeah uh that's scary because this, this speaks to like uh the trump era i guess where it's like without reason these people yeah. will roam the deserts and vote against their own health care oh god <laughs> i love how I a movie no. made in 87 you have brought it to to Trump's America, that is impressive. I will, uh, I will make fun of those people uh, until we're all dead, which will be very soon. Yeah, it shouldn't take long. So let's yeah. let's get all those shots out. Not a big That's true. For me. That's true. <laughs> all right. Um, so let's talk about the acting. So our main character is played by Adrian Pasdar, who people may know from Heroes. That's like no, the old, that's the old, I've never Profits. seen that. I've oh, never God, it is a great 90 show. It is like, okay, <laughs> he, he works. He's like works in I don't know, some, you know, anonymous business company that he's like trying to take down. It's like this corporate like sabotage. Like he's basically like, oh, it's profit uh, with an F, not a PH. Right. Okay. Yes. Got it. I think so. I don't, I don't know. It doesn't matter. There's a scene where he, every night he goes to bed after he's like stabbed someone in the back. He's, <laughs> he's Christian Bale's character from American Psycho, except this okay. was on network television. Hmm. He goes and sleeps in a cardboard box and eats chicken nude. <laughs> this was on, I watched this in middle school. I could not believe then. <laughs> this was just on network, on antenna TV and no one has ever seen it. I once owned a copy of the DVD box set that they made like a limited run of and someone took it from me. Can you believe that you can't trust anybody <laughs> with now. anything? Someone stole, it's not even stole like they, they had no idea what it was, and they took this precious, like this gem <laughs> from me. 
I'm going to make it my goal to find you a copy of this. I'm going to have to replace to, that. You know what? I'm not going to type on my keyboard, but I am going to tell the listeners. I am now looking on my phone. I'm going <laughs> to see what the eBay prices are on this thing. Let's see if Amazon has it, a third-party seller. Go ahead and make your point, Dave, yeah. and I'll agree with you. So, <laughs> oh, I love this. Do this all the time, anytime you're on the show. Um, I thought Adrian Pazdar was good. I don't think he's great, but I don't think you have to be. Like, he, I think he's supposed to be a little bit of a blank slate. And you kind of mentioned him just kind of lazily kind of hanging around, kind of waiting for something to happen. I did feel like almost like he, you know, and it's weird that he doesn't look that different in 1987 as he does now. Because I almost felt like he seemed a little bit too old for the role. Like, I actually would have preferred somebody a little bit younger. Because usually that's what happens in these vampire movies is, you know, someone young and pure is, you know, taken by the vampires and changed. And he he felt like he was a little bit older and kind of set in his ways. So it almost didn't match what the character was doing. But I thought he was serviceable. I, I liked it. I mean, I felt like it's it gave him a little bit more reason where it's like, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're past your prime days. You're not, mm, uh, okay. you're not the... You're not the dazed and confused characters who think that they're just gonna fuck as much as they want. And everything the eighties are stay. gonna be amazing. This, yes. <laughs> yeah. No. No. You're. This is a guy that's had time to get bored slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, since I told you I was gonna agree with your point, I just checked. There are two left in stock from a third party seller on Amazon. Sixty six ninety five. Sons of bitches. Someone. <laughs> Someone robbed <laughs> you. Man. I'm going to put this on my Patreon page. I've not updated for months. <laughs> Get Mike the Prophet series. Um, the, the tagline: "A name you can't trust." Ooh, ooh. <laughs> that is very '90s. That is excellent. <laughs> um, so the the other kind of supposed main character here, um, the female vampire, is played by Jenny Wright. And again, like I think she's fine, but I found myself much more drawn to the rest of the family than I was these two, the, our two, I guess, protagonists um, in this movie. The good guys, the good yeah. vampires, I guess. Ish, yeah. Um, and I just found myself wanting, as always, wanting to get back to Bill Paxton. Like, that's, you know, I think that's <laughs> it's true of most any movie he's in for me. But, but I, you know, I, I thought she, just like him, I felt like she was serviceable. Like, she was fine. Um, I think she shines in that kind of, in the opening of this movie, when the two of them are first connecting, like it, I thought it was like actually a decent, the start of this is the start of a decent romance. Like they have their little, their little meat cute, you know? And then of course everything goes to shit cause she's a vampire and couldn't control, couldn't control whatever urges were going on. But again, I felt like, you know, and I feel like Bigelow knows it, that these two, these two actors aren't, aren't the ones she should lean on. So like, as the movie goes on, it's more like they're in these situations and we're paying more attention to the, the dad or Bill Paxton's character. Or the, uh, the, the Homer character who's like a, you know, child, the Kirsten Dunst. Oh, uh, awful. Basically. The kid is terrible. Uh, oh, you, you didn't like Homer. I, I didn't him. understand some of his mannerisms, like why he grabs uh prophet oh. as I'm going to call him by the crotch as a means of introduction. <laughs> so That's so but, strange. I just, I, I mean, this should tell you everything you wanted to know. I wanted him to die for basically the entire runtime of this movie. Like I was like, it's going to happen. So please let this man child, please perish because I cannot stand to hear his voice anymore. It's actually the biggest weak spot of the movie for me is that performance. Like you take that performance out and I unabashedly love this movie, but you know, well, I'm no longer looking at profit uh, prices. So I'm just gonna say you're wrong on this one because 
uh, annoying voice and all. I bought why he was so frustrated and so pent up. Oh no, that makes sense. That, forever. that made sense. The performance is not great, but this, I mean, it's, it's playing with the idea that, you know, a lot of vampire movies and novels have played with that. You have this child or this adult inside of a child's body. And this adult has urges and desires and wants, and they can't act on it because like society at large still sees them as a child, and so would anyone within that society. I like that idea in the script. I just don't like the performance. Uh, side note: Not uh, working as an actor anymore. It doesn't look like or hasn't. In Shocking! 10 years. Shocking! Uh, but uh, is wrote four episodes or uh, yeah, Queen of the South. I don't know what that no. is, but I've heard and of wrote that the show. Final Girls uh, horror film it came oh, out a couple years ago. That's not bad, actually. So. Yeah, good, good for him. He figured out he couldn't act and like went a different route. That's good. Why do you have to be so mean, Dave? <laughs> I, I, I give a success story and you you still turn around the fact that That's right. he knows. He knows. <laughs> he knows. But really, I think this movie hinges on the performances of Bill Paxton and Lance Henriksen. And I think they're both great. Like if you're going to get like, you know, I mentioned this earlier, this kind of dirty, grungy vampire story. Like I can't think of any two, act, two better actors in the 80s to fill those roles than these two. Like I think they're both like Lance Henriksen is kind of quietly terrifying and he's very good at that and bill paxton's kind of the opposite he's like he's he's the loud one he's the one who can who can play this kind of role who can go over the top and have it be entertaining and i like the kind of the the dichotomy between those two types of characters who are equally scary but for different reasons yeah it's not good cop bad cop it's just bad cop loud, loud cop, cop. That's <laughs> yes. yeah that's that's it um and you know bill paxton's not He's not really playing anything differently than what he did in Ever. Terminator or <laughs> Aliens. It, it's just the fact that he's not—he's not so much an idiot in this one because he finally has the powers to back up. Right. Back up. It's like if his Terminator character was bitten by these people. Oh yeah. And then instead of just talking shit, he could actually back it up. He could punch someone through a wall. Yep. Uh, but he's still an idiot. Um, yep. And I like that. I've I've on the record multiple times saying I like movies about dumb people. And this <laughs> is, is a, why you love Bill dumb vampire. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, he is dumb, but you can you can understand how he's gotten to that point because if you know if you look at the age he was probably turned, he was probably you know early twenties, full of confidence, full of you know all that. So he could, and then he can't be touched. He can't be harmed. So like, who's going to check him at that point? other than maybe Lance Hendrickson or other vampires. So so he's never going to learn a lesson to be like softer or quieter. Like he's just going to he's just going to keep going because no one can talk to him and and talk him down from this. Like he's just going to go that way until he dies, you know? So it actually makes sense. Yeah, I think this film actually gets the clickish natures of vampires that I've always mm. wondered about and assumed um because it's a is a major commitment within their <laughs> mythology usually. Yeah. And it's sort of referenced here by the Homer character saying uh that he made May who made uh profit and so now for whatever reason it's like he that attachment's no longer there so he's got to make someone else and uh I I get the feeling that they probably this group of vampires always enjoyed being the outcast. That's why right. they were able to embrace this lifestyle and, you know, getting John Q handsome, like with his cowboy boots, probably <laughs> was a, a faux pas from me. <laughs> like probably yeah, you got to bring in a freak, bring in, bring in Bill Paxson with the Mohawk right. from Terminator and he'll fit right in. And I don't know. I, I would have liked, I would have liked to seen that maybe explored just a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's, 
something that maybe later in life, I don't know if she would have sided as much because it feels like the film definitely is always on Adrian Pastor's side, mm-hmm. which I mean, he's the, the victim. He's the one that we see go through the process. Uh, but there was a, a hope when I first watched this that in that shootout sequence you mentioned, he he leaves, he jumps, he like flees to get bring the the van in. I wonder. The first time I watched it, I was like, "Why well, are they going to kill our lead off here? That right. would be awesome." I would have and, actually preferred that because, yeah. like, like I said, the characters I'm interested in aren't aren't our protagonist, you know. And I, I, you know, I was just thinking about kind of talking about the age of these people when they're turned, and it maybe it makes more sense uh, that Lantenrickson's character is more calm and measured because he probably was turned in his, you know, forties, you know, so he's lived a life. He's had experience. He knows, he kind of knows how to act in society and he knows how to, you know, arrange things in these situations to his advantage. Um, And even you can feel like, I think he uses Paxton's character to his advantage. Like he knows he's a loose cannon and he knows when to let him loose. Like he knows when to kind of clear the bar and figure out how things are going to work. You know, he is definitely the brains of the operation. Like, and I also like the relationship between him and his, his wife, his mate, I guess, whatever you want to call it. Like, I, I like that there's a particular interaction when they're, um, when he's going to kill the, the waitress at the bar. Um, and I like that he kind of like eases her over and is kind of charming. And then she's the one who attacks. I like the way that that partnership works together. And that whole scene, actually, we'll talk about later because that whole scene, which goes on for five or 10 minutes, is pretty fantastic. And I think the standout of the movie for me. But Yeah, I uh, I mean, she's someone that oh, all these characters are recognizable. Pretty much they walked off the set of Aliens. To mm, this, yeah, but, very much. Uh, so, yes. Yeah, Diamond back here. I'm like, wait, isn't this uh, Edward Furlong's mom, stepmom from Terminator? <laughs> like, you know, I'm, I'm just imagining her in like, you know, liquid metal form, like knifing <laughs> the real version of herself. So, yeah, I was intimidated by uh, Diamond back uh, just yeah. a little bit. But they, they have a. I mean, they do have a strangely loving relationship, yeah. uh, even just the, the way they there's not, as you said, there's not a lot of dialogue, but there's this the way that everything is physically staged. There's a comfort like that you can tell has lasted decades with the two of them that mm-hmm. I really appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. Same. All right. So it's not Brad Pitt making out with Kirsten Dunst. It's mm-hmm. a, not as awkward. Hard as pass. <laughs> Hard pass on that. Oh, boy. Um, so let's talk about the script here. So for me, there's there's essentially two stories here going on. You have you know, the, the turning of the vampire story and the kind of road movie that goes there. And then you also have kind of a chase story where you have, you know, his father and his sister coming to try to find him. And I kept thinking, like, I, I knew it was necessary to have that plot line because, you know, of where the plot goes. You need him to escape. You need him to be cured. But I did feel like that stuff was really rushed, like just kind of magically. They kind of ran into the vampires. They were able to track them really easily. And it felt like, and especially for a movie that's only 90 minutes, it felt like there wasn't a lot of confidence in being able to explain how all this was working. So we just, as an audience, had to kind of go with it. What did you think about those two plot lines and how they intersected? I didn't mind it because I just think I think the vampires here are like a version of like Pooh and the Heffalumps. I think they're just kind of driving in circles. These in the references. Jesus. <laughs> I think they just are going to end up you know, back at square one. It's a small town. And... They're going to come across each other <laughs> yeah. eventually. Um, so, yeah, I didn't have an I didn't have an issue uh, with that because uh, if this is the life they choose, uh, you know, the, there's a reference to it. It's made as a joke, whereas like the, the hotel clerk, uh, 
tells Lance Hendrickson, like, hey, you're, I recognize you. And he's like, yeah, I'm here once every 50 years. Like, you know, <laughs> save me a room or whatever. Right. And I just feel like, you know, they've, they found this particular stomping ground and uh, that's where they want to be. I did find the, the, the father and sister going <laughs> vigilante, I guess, <laughs> on their own to find their uh, adult son, someone mm-hmm. who's, you know, in his 20s. Yeah. I, I found that to be strange that they're, and so I, I don't know. I, I gave, I just gave the film a pass on it because I was just like, okay, maybe he's just, you know, he's like the town drunk. Maybe the dad is used to. <laughs> Everybody knows he's a fuck up. Like, son. here we yeah, go. <laughs> I gotta go drag him back home. Uh, and I, you know, because whatever happened, he was stumbling on fire. He was smoking across the yard, and his Seems buddies normal. came and threw him back in the van. <laughs> See, I, I didn't have, you know, I don't right. have any issue with that. It's it's uh, it's a pretty ridiculous movie anyway, and it it, it's. Uh, it, I'm sure it was filmed on a shoestring budget. Oh yeah, whatever, whatever the aliens uh, catering bill was, I'm sure Cameron right. was just like, "Here, take that. Here, have a good time. Yeah, have a yeah. blast." There is one moment of dialogue in this movie that I had to kind of push aside my my own like 2017 <laughs> political leanings. Like, there's a scene in the very beginning where she wants him to take her home because she knows she's gonna die. He doesn't know this, of course, and he basically holds her for ransom like saying kiss me first and then i'll take you home and i was like "Ooh, i don't know <laughs> this is our hero i don't know how i feel about this asshole like i'm gonna hide the keys you know in my in my lap and then uh if you kiss me i'll take you home like mm, i don't know how i feel about that so as you're watching it now in 2017 did you have any reaction to that or did you just kind of brush it off as part of the time i don't think i'd have any issue with it if it was in a 2017 film because given given how it's played out like i think if you just stumbled across this on television it may i don't think a lot of people are going to know much about this and certainly uh you know we were talking about the casting earlier uh johnny depp uh auditioned for the role of caleb and didn't get it that was probably a mistake in the long run of the film as far as its popularity although watching it now would be really creepy given given yes but since he's not johnny johnny depp uh i think you know the the scene plays out when he does that. He it plays off like, hey, here's the jerk jock who's about to get slaughtered by the monster. Yeah. And so I I think it's actually effective. Mm. If you don't know anything about the film, you're like, oh, he's the first death. Right. And it, it it's a little bit of a, a surprise that it works that way. Now, as far as speaking to May's interest in Caleb, I can only, you know, I can only say that as evidence, she's hanging around Bill Paxton for decades. So this guy doesn't appear to be that. This seems all right. Yeah. (laughs) A kiss. That's it. Yeah. All right. That seems okay. Yeah. But I I took it, I took it as a, uh, as a sort of a twist that we Mm. expect this, this asshole's about to bite it. And then, you know, she just runs off instead. Right. Okay. Uh, We already talked about kind of the different class of vampire, uh, which I really like. Uh, One thing I wanted to talk to you about is like, it's not our theme, but we kind of mentioned it earlier. This is, you know, a not very subtle nod to a kind of a story of addiction, right? Like he becomes a vampire and finally gets that bloodlust and then he, he kind of escapes and they give him, I guess, a blood transfusion and that cures him, which is very strange as someone for me who like really, I've seen a lot of vampire movies, I've read a lot of vampire books and it, it just, it felt like a little simple for me. And I, and I know, again, it's like because we need to be efficient and move the plot along, but it did seem like, well, we, uh, we people out in the desert, we just tried one thing and it worked. So I guess we could move on now. Like, it's just like, really? 
That's where we're at. That's all you need. <laughs> don't all question it. Doctors <laughs> don't need don't know shit. We'll just uh, we're just gonna get this transfusion, our home kit, and uh, it'll all be fine. Apparently, you've not seen many of the mad san- scientist movies where it's like, let's keep pushing this further and right. explore it. Nope. That's good. It fixed it. We don't need to know why. It's just new blood, like yeah. changing the oil. That's it. Yeah. I, another thing I like about this script, though, is that there's a lot of points. Like I mentioned earlier, there's all these points where the movie feels like it's going to end. But there's also a lot of points where you feel like, oh, our main character is really in trouble. And he ends up escaping those situations, like him getting stopped by the police officer at the bus station who who thinks he's high on something. And I thought, like, oh, he's going to be arrested by this cop. It's going to be terrible. And he just, like, kind of gives him some change and lets him go. And I like how that kind of subverted the expectations of a scene like that, where it clearly looks like this cop is like, well, he's high on something. Thing, so I'm going to lock him up. But I like that, you know, there's this moment where he has pity for him and he's like, oh, he just wants to go home. Let me let me help this kid out. So I like that moment, too. I didn't read that that way. I thought it, he just looked at it as this is the most economical use of too my much, time. Too much money trouble. Two dollars yeah. and yeah. get the hell out of my town. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's, that's how I read that. So it's not kindness so much as it's like, I don't want to deal with this. So get on that bus. Being practical. Get away from it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I do like how kind of simple and straightforward the script is, how, you know, there's not a lot of time wasted here. You know, the the kind of his bite happens, I think, like five minutes into the movie. There's not there's not a lot of build up with the family. There's not a lot like you just kind of dive right in, which I always appreciate, especially with a genre movie like this. Like, I mean, who knows how this was publicized in the in the late 80s? But for me, I knew it was a vampire movie. So I'm glad we didn't take a lot of time to explain and show that it was a vampire movie. They just kind of throw you straight in. You know, they, they're not interested in the mythology too much. No. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, there's obviously the trope with the, the child, um, you know, poor Homer that you hate and despise. Um, there is a moment where you see a cross uh, on mm-hmm. one of their guns. And I, I do think that they're having fun with like, okay, we're not going to play by like all the rules entirely. Um, so it's a very, you know, it's a very stripped down version of of the of the vampire lore here. And uh, as you said, it's basically, it's basically like a bunch of drunks who can't stand sunlight, like killing the yeah. buzz. Like they're I totally, over. I that's <laughs> I relate to that. <laughs> all of that. That's maybe that's why I like this movie so much. Just want to drink and stay in the dark. What's wrong with that? That's healthy, right? It's fine. And yet you find yourself in the desert. You're... Yeah. Yeah. See, that's where, that's where they lose me. Cause I would never get anywhere close if I could avoid it. All right, uh, so let's talk about the production value really quickly. There's probably not going to be that much. This is a, you can tell it is a cheaply made movie, um, but it suits it, I think. I think I, maybe that's the reason why this ends up taking place in the desert, because that's really, you know, you could just go out to the desert and shoot. It's not like anyone lives out there, so it seems like pretty easy uh, to get that done. But I also, there's some really subtle, cool makeup work being done. Like as he's as he's been infected, like from scene to scene, you can see him getting more pale and his skin getting more drawn. And as he like refuses to feed, you can see it actually affecting him. And I was actually I was I wasn't expecting it to be that that detailed in in a movie kind of made on the cheap like this. So I was kind of happy to see that. I like the uh, the emptiness of the, the film itself. Uh, you know, maybe that plays into the finances, but right. I I like that. You know, the desert and even when they're in town, um, you know, it's just like empty sort of two lane roads in these small towns. I 
I I don't know. It's scarier that way. It's yeah. like their own little vampire playground. Well, yeah, at. no one's and... gonna come across them and stop this. Right. It's just yeah. <laughs> there's no help. Yeah, I totally. And I mean, agree. the last time they did, you know, the dude just jumped out <laughs> on fire and drove the van through the building, and like you do. Yeah, the, the Texas Rangers were just like, all right, fuck that. I'm not. Yeah, I'm yeah we're not. We're not going. Nope, not filing that report. <laughs> Not worth it at all. And I also, it's been mentioned, but I just kind of like how dirty this movie is. And that goes for Mm -hmm. the characters and the setting. Like, everything feels very grimy and lived in. There's never a moment where you feel like, oh, they just got out of a trailer, probably because they couldn't afford trailers on the shoot. But, like, you never feel like these are a bunch of actors working. It just feels like... You know, especially people like Lance Hendrickson and Bill Paxton, like, feel very much a part of that world that she built here. So I, I like that, too. All right, so now we move to favorite scenes. So what's one of your favorite scenes in Near Dark? I'd say my favorite scene uh, is probably, uh, you mentioned the meet cute uh, mm-hmm. earlier. Uh, I I mean, it's expedited, but I liked that we focus, you know, we open with this guy with his feet up who just drives mm-hmm. into town to find anything to do. Like, I mean, it's a beautiful landscape, but uh, especially someone like, that's younger like they they have to find some sort of stimulation and i really like the way jenny wright plays may Mm -hmm. like i you know she's she's like hunting you know as we know later but uh she just basically knows that a new presence sort of in a small town is all she has to really do is Mm -hmm. to kind of show up and basically the food will will come to her but i i get the like i don't know there's a there is a sadness the way she plays it that this is like you know for a vampire, this is like her nine to five. Right. This is like, you know, there's, there's Guess almost I gotta a boredom go eat. over. Yeah. Yeah. How easy it is, um, for her. And it's certainly easier than what we see with, uh, Bill Paxton or Lance Hendrickson, who are rough looking customers. You know, they're, yes. they're not people who are to be trusted. Whereas, right. uh, I do think there's a little bit of guilt that she carries with her character, that she's someone being a younger, uh, female, younger, white female, blonde hair, that she's someone that people are going to want to help out or accept. And so there's not a lot of thrill-seeking. for her, her lifestyle is dramatically different as a vampire than Bill Paxton's. And I think that's sort of played with by the actors. I mean, it's never really verbalized, but I really like that. So I like that. I like the hunting from, from May and how they meet. I, I don't know. It's just an interesting way to start a vampire movie. Yeah. I, I remember being struck by that opening scene kind of like, that's the, this movie's like two minutes old and I'm like, Oh, what am I in for? Like, this is not yeah. what I thought I was going to see. And, and had I not known it was a vampire movie, like that first scene, you're like, Oh, what a sweet, like romance. Like, this is nice. These two people finding each other, these two strangers. Yeah, until he puts Yeah, (laughs) always a bad move. That's that's say it goes downhill from there. Yeah, but it is like I don't know. Maybe he just maybe he was a fan of Diner. Maybe he was a Mickey Rourke guy, and he's just like, let me get wait wait let me get my popcorn box from the side (laughs) compartment. So classy, so classy. (laughs) And I mentioned it earlier, but my favorite scene is the scene in the bar. Um, for a number of reasons, I think it's it's really interesting to watch Bill Paxton work in this scene. Like, I, I think in a lot of vampire movies, there's not a character like this. Usually, uh, like I said, vampires are kind of classy and standoffish, and they tend to give people a chance to escape. And he does the opposite. Like, he wants to set people up. Like, this whole sequence with him, oh, I spilled your drink? Sorry about that. And then he, you know, gives him a drink and then tells him to pay for it. Like, I love that sequence uh, because not only is he setting up this victim, 
but he's also setting up our main character. Like, he wants him to attack. He wants him to let loose. So he figures the best way to do this is to start a bar brawl. And I just love that in that character. And then you have the comparison when you have Lance Henriksen's character very smoothly kind of getting this waitress to trust him a little bit before she's killed. And I think it's just, it's so interesting to watch both of them work. And you have the sequence where Adrian Pazdar is shot and like you get the kind of cool special effect of him surviving this gunshot blast. And I just love that whole sequence. Like I would just watch that on its own. I like it that you compliment Lance Henriksen's Jesse Hooker character for being smooth as he slits a waitress's throat. Yeah. Like with, a bottle. <laughs> what a smooth James Bond-like character we've got here. <laughs> well, if you look at what happens right before that, she's like, it's almost flirtatious right before that's happened because he's so kind to her when all this other bad stuff is going on. <laughs> I think it's only in comparison to all the nonsense that Bill Paxton is doing in the corner over there. And it, I think I'm it not following you down this rabbit hole that he's doing anything that's kind or he comes across as sweet. No, he comes across as sweet, but he's setting her up. What do you think he is, Jack Lemon or Walter Matthau? Like, what a sweet old man over there. <laughs> what a weird choice. <laughs> well, Stars of grumpy yeah. old men. Yes. <laughs> well, my point is, you know, he doesn't look ineffectual. He still looks like a very threatening. The way he dresses, I mean, he's yeah. just... He's, know, he's he, definitely he still like a... He's not wearing suspenders in his pants up to his tits. I mean, he's like, you know... I love how that's what you bar. think. Of. I love that that's what, when I say smooth old man, you think suspenders up to his tits. Not what I was going for, but it's interesting to not know how smooth, your brain works. But kind. I'm going kind. And you call this guy kind. I'm like, what is wrong with you? He's not a kind old man. So much, no. no, he's definitely not. But like he he knows how to hunt, I think. Is, is the way he does. He's Whereas Bill Paxton is just going to be as loud as possible. I think Henriksen like, could do that, but he doesn't want the trouble. Like he's too, it, it puts him out too much. Did you ever see the ice fishing sequences from those, the grumpy old men mythology? The song? Those men know how to Extended hunt. universe. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yes. All right. <laughs> so now at this point, we'll move to the theme uh, which very easily could have been, of course, addiction. We would have had plenty to talk about, but I've already covered that on one of your recommendations, train spotting. Um, so instead, I kind of wanted to look at not only how the the vampires interact, but this this kind of subplot of our main character's family coming back to help him out. So there's a lot of stuff about familial bonds in this movie. So so how do you think that applied to Near Dark? I think uh, the Caleb character. Um... I think the way he seems to quickly get over the hump of these this kind old man who's slitting throats and Bill Paxton that's you know breaking people's necks like he seems pleased with himself that he's been accepted when he saves them when he's mm-hmm. able basically uh, gets the old pat on the back here from this group of vampires and I felt like the way it plays out that he would have started to see this group of people as his family or as well, the family he got to pick, even though that's not the case. Cause he got bitten. He, he, really he might've picked like, one of getting, them at best. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it's really, you know, I, I feel like there's the guilt. Um, it, it's not really explored what his relationship with his dad is. Uh, it doesn't seem particularly good or bad. No. Um, it seems but like he's put up with his son more than, you know, right. they have a connection. I think the connection is but, stronger with his sister. For sure. Right. And I think uh, it's it's funny. It's like 
uh, you know, I mean, it's it's natural for uh, you know a certain age uh, for you to stop treating your parents like your parents or like that sort of day to day bond that you have. Uh, but it is it, like vampires always, especially vampire movies, play with the idea of age, and mm-hmm. it really is the fact that he's got some sort of baggage with his sister who is. Uh, there, there's a definite age gap between him. He's a grown man, and she's still a small girl. She's a child. Mm-hmm. That he, it seems like he, he takes on like a father-like presence with her, and that's really the only reason he sort of, uh, at least from my take on it, that he gives up the lifestyle with the vampires. I feel like he's yeah drifting to that that point where he's like, I could do this. I could. This could be my lifestyle with May and <laughs> and Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon <laughs> in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know where to go for that. Um, Sophia Loren is Diamondback. It'd be great. We should recast this now. <laughs> oh, we'll love it. Remake of Near Dark. I like it. Um, yeah, I, I found the. I also found the kind of whatever familial relationship there is between the vampires really interesting because you know, and vampire movies can do this where we have characters of very of of a certain age that they look like and they act very differently. So it was really interesting, especially even though I didn't like this performance, even to see this Homer this, baby. To see Homer interact especially um with Bill Paxton's character because I think Homer's character is actually is a lot more mature uh than Bill Paxton's character. So I I liked their interactions. But like I don't know, for me they never felt like felt quite like a fully working family unit like they were because they're like a family of fuck-ups like they're you're gonna have these issues where it's not like everyone has their specific role like there's definitely a mother and a father um but like everything else it seems like it's kind of it's constantly moving like you never know where people stand which i which i found really interesting that they somehow functioned over all these years despite being pretty dysfunctional as a unit well, you, you have to be lockstep with that dysfunction, right? Like right. if you're not if you're not a fuck up, and uh, it's interesting what Homer decides to do there. Which I mean that that really decides their fate when he mm-hmm. wants to abduct Caleb's sister and make him uh, his basically his version of a wife. I guess yeah. his companion, child bride. Um, That's, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I don't know. Like eventually they would catch up in years. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the legalese is with vampires. Yeah, I don't know point. how that would work, and um, I don't want to think about that. So. But other than the fact that she's just there, um, you know, it seems like a bad call. Like yeah. it doesn't and I, I don't know the, the Homer story here. Obviously, he was a <laughs> child at one point. But what would lead Homer to believe that he could even play or assume that role? Like he's doing such a bad job of playing at what a child is supposed to say, like fascinated by the Coke machine. We'll go watch something on TV, you know, back when TV stations actually turned off for the night. And he's like, no, no, we'll find something else. And it's like, you don't even know how to watch TV, right? Kid. Like, what are you, you know, too much time in the RV. That's (laughs) (laughs) there's a, there's a dark indie film that can be titled that I can see us pitching that to, I don't. I don't know who it would fail. <laughs> Too much time in the RV. That's right. Starring Steve Carell. <laughs> How about that. I love it. 
book it. It's perfect. All right. Um, so, like, actually, I wanted to thank you for recommending this movie because I really enjoyed this. Uh, and I always worry when someone recommends a movie that's like the first or second thing on a director's uh, IMDb list. It's always kind of like, oh, maybe she had a lot of room to grow. But like, I think you can really see that talent here. And it's it's definitely a movie worth watching if you can find it. It's not something that's super readily available, like on streaming or anything like that. But it's not streaming anywhere. Yeah. Is it? No, it's not. So you gotta you gotta purchase it or find it another way. Whatever whatever you people want to do, that's up to you. But I I actually had a copy of this damn thing nice. sealed. I had a Blu-ray copy, which oh. you don't. Is that really why you recommended it? Is that why you recommended it? <laughs> <laughs> crack that uh, open. That's, I knew it. <laughs> Can pull that off the shelf. I knew sure. there was a catch. Uh, that's pretty much how 300 episodes of War Machine vs. Yeah. War Horse have been programmed. What I can open I this now. All right. I can finally have a reason <laughs> to watch this shit. Yeah. No, but I really I really enjoyed it. So thank you for that. So the last thing we have to talk about is the movie we're tying this with, uh, which is Catherine Bigelow's latest, uh, Detroit, which is already uh, getting shit on because of its kind of cultural aspects going on. I guess there are like almost no black female characters in this movie at all, just black male characters and then a bunch of white people. So people are not taking kindly to that. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, there are black women in the movie, but no like named characters. So that's a little, it's not great. Uh, so, uh, but after seeing the trailer, which I assume you've seen by now, cause it's playing everywhere. Are you looking forward to Detroit? Yeah. I, I, I tend to not take my cues from, what Twitter's upset about no? at all. In well, that's I, everything. That's <laughs> just out of spite. I will pretty much support whatever they're currently hating. But, uh, no, actually I don't know if I've seen a trailer. Now that, you, really. now that you say that, uh, I've not seen a lot of movies in theaters this summer. Uh, and, <laughs> now that I uh, let you off the hook, there's no more new movies. Yeah. There's really I... no reason to go. Uh, so I'm just operating under, you know, Catherine Bigelow, Mark Bull, who I like zero dark 30, mm-hmm. uh, John Boyega, Anthony yeah. Mackie, who I love. Uh, so I, I just hope he's yeah. playing his pain and gain character. Then this movie will really take off. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I I was about to before you said that I was like, oh yeah, it's got a great cast, and apparently that's what's causing controversy. Yeah, but, of course. Um, I, yeah, I don't I don't know. Um, I I think it'll be. I mean, it, it could be. I mean, it's two hours and twenty three minutes, which I'm not a mm, fan of. But yeah. uh, something like this, you know, you're trying to do uh, you know a recreation of a historical event, and you probably have a lot to cover. Uh, otherwise, you're going to make even more people mad. So, right. uh, I don't know too much about my Michigan history because I don't really care for the state of Michigan. So, um, this has been a I'm recurring theme on your run. show. Like, this has never <laughs> yeah. died. This is like yeah, way that's a, back. That's when. a deep pull there. That yeah, is. if you're a fan of War Machine versus Warfare, it's Force, like episode seven. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't really like Michigan. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I, I am looking forward to it, but it's it's got a lot to do with uh, at least uh, two of the actors and uh, Catherine Bigelow. So that's, yeah, I that's, mean, that's all I'm really going off of. I mean, I think Catherine Bigelow at this point has like as for me as an audience member, she's earned my trust. Like I don't I don't think she's made a bad movie. She's made some that are not as good as others. Like I just watched uh, K-19, The Widowmaker, which is not great. Uh, but if you put another director at the helm of that movie, it's probably terrible. I mean, you still got to deal with Harrison Ford and his ridiculous Russian accent in that movie, but she hasn't made a bad movie and she's made
made some truly, truly great movies. Like if you look at, you know, in the action genre, if you look at Point Break, or if you want to look at, you know, movies like Zero Dark Thirty, like she has made great, great films. So there's always a chance when you go to see one of her movies that you're going to see a movie that you're never going to forget. Like I could, I could watch Zero Dark Thirty once and never again, and it will always be in my memory. Like that's something I'm not going to forget. So it could be that. And I think John Boyega is a really good young actor and someone to watch, and I'm just not going to miss it. So I'm excited for Detroit too. I mean, I'm glad because you're doing an episode on it. Yeah, I fucking better be. I chose it. I mean, it's either that or the Dark Tower, and I cannot deal with any more fucking Dark Tower bullshit online. I just I can't deal with it because everybody loves it, and I'm like, yeah, it's all right. So that's not the best way to go into a movie. And even the people who like that series are like, that movie's probably going to suck. So uh, as much as I love Idris Elba. uh... Yeah, I think it has pretty much ate its lunch. Everyone just wants to get to that adaptation. Yep, so let's get yeah, to the Dark clown. Tower. This was of all the years to put out Dark Tower. There's a better Stephen King movie <laughs> coming up a month later, and there's never been spoken for. Hey, there's a better Stephen King movie coming up. Shawshank. <laughs> Maybe that's it. I don't. I don't know. Stand by me. But yeah, The Shining. They finally, get Dark Tower <laughs> on screen, and uh, it's like, oh, we're the the shitty Stephen King movie <laughs> right. that year, that month. Jesus. Ouch. Well, at least it's only going to be like ninety no minutes though. It's an hour and a half. That's why I feel so. bad. Elba's who, you know, I don't know. I, I hope this is not held against him, this this impending Dark Tower yeah. failure. Here's hoping but, not. Uh, he, I does, really, uh, he does have two more movies coming out this year, though, to kind of recover from that. Um, he's got, um, uh, he's got, I can't remember the title, but he's got a movie with Kate Winslet coming out where they're like stranded after a plane accident. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he's got, you know, kind of a, maybe not Oscar Beatty, but definitely like a more dramatic, like kind of standard performance out there so you know maybe and then he's got molly's game with jessica chastain that's supposed to come out in november so hey haven't yeah. you seen that uh no comment i can't talk about that mike can't Jesus. talk about that on a podcast so don't uh, give me that shit <laughs> i can't i signed an nda <laughs> it should give you, you... should have signed my name <laughs> i thought about it <laughs> all right so one more time before you go why don't you tell people uh where they can find your podcast and you online uh, yeah, War Machine vs. War Horse is on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, your, your whatever your pod player of choice is. It's also on followingfilms.com alongside this show, and uh, you can interact with me if you so choose. Uh, I actually, I guess you can just mention me because you probably won't see me tweeting uh, at War Machine Horse, but I will respond uh, or screenshot it if it's something suitably complimentary or offensive. <laughs> thanks everybody for listening to another episode of pop culture case study and thank you mike despite the fact that that episode went off the rails from basically the beginning all the way till the end but we both hope you enjoyed it all right so the next time we do an episode hopefully if all goes well we will be doing both a review of detroit uh featuring baruch of the cinema bun podcast and and fangirl fixation just might make its triumphant return. We might be taking a, a short look at another Catherine Bigelow movie, one of my favorites mentioned on this episode, Strange Days. So if you'd like to connect with the show, I would love it if you would follow me on Twitter at PCK Study. Uh, you can always interact there. You can follow me on Facebook, too. I have a page and a group. You can also just tell your friends about the show so we can get more listeners. That's always great, and I just love when when our show gets recommended. You can uh, review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen, or if you've got some extra change, you can go to patreon.com 
slash pop culture case study. And there you can actually donate on a per episode basis and get some cool rewards. You might get a shout out on Twitter. Uh, you might get to pick the movie uh, we talk about. You might to pick, get to pick uh, a topic for Brit and I to talk about on Fangirl Fixation. All sorts of opportunities for you there. So anything you can afford, I definitely appreciate it. All right. Until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Rushing me to the final segment. What is this? This is like the last sketch on SNL. I'm, I'm getting bumped to the end of the show. <laughs> That's right. I'm. Uh, it's like a uh, Matt Damon on Jimmy Kimmel. I'm just gonna. Nope. <laughs> Till the end. All right. I think I still have more hair than him, though. Yes, I think you do. Just, just barely. <laughs> he has more fake hair, but... <laughs> well, he's got the I'll money for it. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> are we off now? Are we <laughs> <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> Shut your mouth! Yeah, I, I, like, I mean, Jared asked me that. I'm like, who the fuck do you think you're talking to? You think I told someone to get on Twitter and like start talking to these film people? No. No. <laughs> I have something to promote. I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs>